Monitor Monday is recorded before a live online audience. This is Monitor Monday for April 18th, 2022, sponsored by the American Health Information Management Association. Here's today's rundown. The Vice President of Care Management for Trinity Health, Mary Beth Pace, explains how you and your team can reduce observation volumes that are stressing hospitals. Many on healthcare are anxiously awaiting the release of the inpatient prospective payment proposed rule. Details will follow on Rack Monitor when the proposed rule is posted. We'll get more news on healthcare rules and regulations with Monitor Monday legislative analyst Matthew Albright. We'll also hear from Dr. Ronald Hirsch, healthcare attorney David Glazer, healthcare attorney Nicole Emanuel, and Tiffany Ferguson on the social determinants of health. Now here's the publisher of Rack Monitor and the host of Monitor Monday, Chuck Buck. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to Monitor Monday. We have a great deal of news reporting. We begin this morning, as we always do, with Dr. Ronald Hirsch. Dr. Hirsch is making his Monday rounds here on Monitor Monday. Monday Rounds is sponsored by R1 Physician Advisory Solutions. Here now making his Monday rounds is Dr. Ronald Hirsch. Well, good morning, all. You know, a lot of time is spent on Monitor Monday talking about arbitrary payment and coverage rules that are set up by payers and the remarkably poor job done by government audit agencies and contractors who are supposed to be the experts on the rule. Now with Easter being yesterday and this week being Passover, I'll use the comparison of the providers as David fighting the battle against Goliath. The battle of the little guy doing the right thing against the behemoth evil forces. But yet every day we see reports of providers, be it physicians, pharmacists, SNFs, hospitals, or even whole health systems either manipulating the system or outright cheating to make more money. Last week, a surgical oncologist from Michigan settled with the OIG for doing unnecessary surgery, providing unnecessary chemotherapy, and overbilling office visits. I'll add, I'm honestly not sure why he isn't going to prison for this, and I'm also not sure why so many of these cases seem to occur in Michigan. Now, you're probably asking yourself, why is he talking about this today? Well, I just returned from the National Physician Advisor Conference, where I was interacting with colleagues from around the country, and I got a bit frustrated. As you know, I teach the rules. The rules are the rules, and the rules apply to everyone. Just because an insurer ignores the two-midnight rule or denies diagnoses that are clinically valid does not give us carte blanche to ignore the rules that we don't like. So when I hear, well, if the short-stay auditors are only targeting one-midnight stays, why should we worry if a patient is admitted as inpatient and stays two midnights, even if there's no medical necessity for hospital care, since that chart won't get audited? It just makes my blood boil. In one of the talks, I explained the nuances for billing outpatients who start appropriately receiving observation, but then end up staying past the second midnight for patient or provider convenience. I was asked about the proper coding afterwards, and the attendee noted it rarely happens at their facility because, quote, I can always find a reason for that second midnight to be necessary, so we admit those patients as inpatient. I'm sure all of us can fabricate reasons why a patient needs hospital care, but we shouldn't. Now, let me be clear. I break rules. I drive over the speed limit at times. I walk my dog in the forest preserve this winter, and she pooped in the snow, and I did not pick it up. I'm far from perfect. But to knowingly violate federal rules because you think it's unfair that you won't get paid for those patients staying in the hospital is just plain wrong. Turning your back when a member of your medical staff provides non-covered services and you bill for it is wrong. 
We cannot take the high ground when we act the same as those we are accusing when we don't think anybody is looking. Thanks, Chuck. Back to you. Thank you, Dr. Hirsch. That was the vice president of R1RCM, Ronald Hirsch, MD. Dr. Hirsch was making his Monday rounds here on Monitor Monday. Here now with the Monitor Monday Rack Report is healthcare attorney Nicola Manuel. Today's Rack Report is sponsored by the American Health Information Management Association, reminding you that this week is Hip Week. Here now is Nicola Manuel. Hello and happy Rack Monitor Monday. I'd like to talk to you today about the sheer absurdity about how these Rack, ZPIC, or MACs, and other types of audits are being held against healthcare providers. When an auditor requests documents from a provider, and opines that the provider owes millions of dollars in alleged overpayments, I would expect that the auditor will show up before an independent tribunal to defend its findings. However, for so many of these Medicare provider appeals, the auditor doesn't even appear to defend its findings. In my opinion, if the entity claiming that you owe money back to the government does not appear at the hearing, the provider should automatically prevail. A basic legal concept is that the accused should be able to confront its accuser. I had depositions the last two weeks for a case that involved an opioid treatment program. The two main accusers in this case were Optum and Idaho Medicaid. When Optum was deposed, they testified that Optum didn't conduct the audit of the facility, but when Idaho Medicaid was deposed, it contended that Optum did conduct the audit at issue. So this was a case of people just pointing fingers at one another. When not one person can vouch for the veracity of an audit, it's ludicrous to force the providers to pay back anything. Auditors can't hide behind smoke and mirrors, and they need to testify to the veracity of their audit. To poke holes in the Medicare audit, you need to know the rules. You wouldn't play chess without knowing the rules. Various auditors have disparate look-back periods which is the time frame the auditor is allowed to look back and review a claim. For example, RACs may only look back three years, whereas VPICs have no specific look back period, although I would argue that the older the claim, the less likely it is to be recouped. When appealing the outcome of an audit, it's necessary for providers to have specific reasons for challenging the auditor's determination. Simply being dissatisfied or having generalized complaints about the process is not enough. For example, application of inapplicable Medicare billing rules, misinterpretation of applicable Medicare billing rules, reliance on unsound auditing methodologies, failure to seek expert opinions, ignoring relevant information disclosed by the provider. It is imperative that you arm yourself in defending a Medicare audit, but if the auditor fails to appear at any stage in litigation, then you should call foul and win on that technicality. Back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Nicole, very much. That was healthcare attorney Nicole Emanuel. Nicole is a partner at the law firm of practice. And coming up, you're going to hear from Matthew Albright, David Glazer, Tiffany Ferguson, and Mary Beth Pace, who is standing by to report our lead story, how you and your team can reduce the volume of observation cases. It's tax day. It's April the 18th, and you're listening to the live edition of Monitor Monday. Stand by. 
Here's important information about the healthcare publication focused on third-party auditors. It's the Auditor Monitor. In the current edition of the Auditor Monitor, get the latest developments to improve the contentious prior authorization process. Learn about the advent of electronic standards and sweeping reform being applied to the process, along with advice on how to proceed. Find out what to expect with upcoming Medicare and Medicaid audits for 2022. Gain a clear understanding of the types of auditors and what each auditor is likely to be targeting. All that and more is packaged in the latest edition of the Auditor Monitor. Not a subscriber? Here's your chance to have your own edition of the Auditor Monitor. Go to the Rack University Bookstore and order a subscription today and start receiving your own edition of the Auditor Monitor. Here now with the Monitor Monday Risky Business Report is healthcare attorney David Glazer. David, as I say every Monday morning, what could be risky today? Well, Chuck, it's stressing out over who should investigate an internal problem. I'm often asked whether it matters if you hire an outside person or an organization to conduct an investigation. I think this is a very interesting question, and my answer depends largely on whether the investigation hinges on interviews or documents. For example, let's say you've got to determine whether a physician's documentation supports a particular level of service. Now that review is largely objective. There's certainly some areas for discretion. Do you give credit for location if the patient says ankle but doesn't mention right or left? But at the end of the day, the physician's documentation is simply there or it's not. A quick reminder that in most cases, Medicare does not require documentation, but that's a topic for another day. Hopefully, you've all heard me talk about that. So if the government believes you conducted your review improperly, the government's expert and yours will sit down with the documentation and they'll fight about how to interpret it. In that situation, where the review was done by someone internally or externally is really irrelevant. The government can't effectively argue that the investigation whitewashed reality. Therefore, you should choose your reviewer based on the skill and cost of the reviewer with consideration of whether whoever is going to be the audience will be more likely to accept the results of an internal or external reviewer. When the investigation involves a number of interviews, the argument for involving outsiders becomes stronger. I want to be clear that I don't think outside review is required, and I'm certainly not suggesting that internal reviews are inherently defective, but I want to tell a story from a review I did a few years ago. This work was with a medium-sized organization. I knew the general counsel of this entity quite well. I would describe her as friendly and approachable. We had an interview scheduled with a lower level management professional. The general counsel introduced my colleague and I to the employee. When doing interviews, it's always good to have two people there. So my colleague and I were doing this together. The three of us, the general counsel, my colleague and I, spent about 30 minutes with the employee. Then the general counsel got a phone call. She excused herself from the room. Soon after she left, the employee leaned forward and whispered to my colleague and I that there was something she wanted to say when the general counsel wasn't in the room. She was worrying about being judged by someone higher up in the organization. She then disclosed the fact that was really important for the investigation, but that we wouldn't have discovered had the general counsel not left the room to take a call. Now, I'll acknowledge that many employees will assume that the outside person, the outside interviewer, will report the information back to the leadership, so they still might not share it. But when a lawyer for a company conducts interviews, we routinely provide what's referred to as the Upjohn warning. So this is named after a Supreme Court case, and we explain our role as lawyers for the company 
and that we're not lawyers for any individual with the company. But when I give an Upjohn warning, I always include the fact that I have considerable discretion. I'll explain that if an employee shares information with me that I think is sensitive, I have the ability not to identify the person who shared it with me when I relay that information to management. In essence, I can serve as an insulator. So for sensitive investigations where the factual development through interviews are key, I think there's a true advantage to having outside investigators. So I guess I'm saying that if you've got an employee who's like sixes Mr. Roboto and they're thinking, I've got a secret. I've got a secret. I've been hiding under my skin. They may be slightly more likely to disclose that secret in a good outside interview. It's certainly something to consider. Well, Chuck, I imagine that all of our listeners right now are thinking the time has come at last to throw it back to you. Domo arigato. Domo arigato, Mr. Roboto. Domo. Domo. Thanks, David, very, very much. That was healthcare attorney David Glazer. David is a shareholder the law firm of Fredrickson & Byron in downtown Minneapolis. Here now with the latest news on the social determinants of health is senior healthcare consultant Tiffany Ferguson. Good morning, Tiffany. And what do we need to know today about the social determinants of health? Thanks, Chuck. Last week, CMS followed up on Biden's request to address the quality and delivery of care in skilled nursing facilities. CMS issued a proposed rule that would update Medicare payment policies and rates in fiscal year 2023 as well as proposing new data requirements to the SNF Quality Reporting Program, QRP, and the SNF Value-Based Program. Essentially, the proposed rule is a bigger ask for skilled nursing facilities with less money to do it. To assure budget neutrality, CMS is proposing to to decrease skilled nursing facility payments by 4.6%, which equates to about $1.7 billion. The adjustment is coming as a recalibration of the case mix classification model, as also known as the patient-driven payment model, PDM, PDPM, which went into effect in late 2019. CMS had hoped that payments in the new model would have led to a decrease in charges and spend for skilled nursing facilities, or at least neutrality from the old RUG system. However, the change created an opposite effect with an unintended increase in 5% of payments paid out to SNFs during 2020. The intended goal of this transition is to ensure skilled nursing facilities are aligned with a patient-focused model rather than a model based on the number of services, such as the amount of time completing physical therapy. The difficulty with this proposal is the historical reality of this time of calculation uh, was taken during COVID. And forgive my frankness, but no duh, we absolutely used more SNFs during COVID and patients were abs- that we took care of were absolutely sicker. Okay, now other items in the proposed ruling, and of course the link will be in my report this week, is about five items and let's go through them. One, there's the proposed changes for the PDM PDPM ICD-10 code mapping categories. This is for PT, OT, speech, and non-therapy and ancillary services. Number two, we've got to request a request to add specific coding for patients that are in SNF infection isolation with specific classifications for criteria to meet that, cl- that coding. 
Three, request for input on the effects of direct care staffing. These include nursing, nursing assistants and aides and other personnel with specific intent to determine a minimum required staffing level. They are also looking at a potential SNF value-based purchasing measure to look at facility staffing turnover. Four is CMS is looking to add influenza vaccination coverage rates among facility healthcare personnel as a new measure to their SNF quality reporting program. That is expected to begin in fiscal year 2025. And finally, CMS is requesting to no longer delay the updated minimum data set. We know that is MDS requirements, which includes the transfer and standardization of data elements for race, ethnicity, preferred language, health literacy, and social isolation levels. This ties to their intent to increase reporting on health disparities and how to target future programs to address these concerns across the country. So I ask today our listeners, what is the impact your organization could have as a result of the skilled nursing facility prospective payment system proposed rule? Great impact, some impact, not really impacted or no impact. And with that, back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Tiffany, very much. That was Senior Healthcare Consultant Tiffany Ferguson. Tiffany is the Chief Executive Officer for Phoenix Medical Management, and we're going to have the results of the Monitor Monday survey later in this broadcast. Up next, Matthew Albright with the Monitor Monday Legislative Update. The Monitor Monday Legislative Update is sponsored by Zealous, a market-leading provider-focused electronic healthcare payments technology company. Zealous delivers faster, simpler, more reliable, cost-effective payments backed by award-winning client service to medical and dental providers nationwide. Here now is Matthew Albright. Chuck, the Biden administration has extended the public health emergency for another 90 days, just ahead of its expiration date this past Saturday. This will provide an extension to certain pandemic flexibilities through to mid-July. For instance, the public health emergency makes it easier for people to access health insurance under Medicaid, expand access to telehealth services, and allows agencies to fast-track authorization for COVID testing and vaccines. And if you remember, in its spending bill, Congress further extended telehealth coverage of Medicare for another five months after whenever the national emergency ends. So this means that the telehealth waivers will now continue to at least mid-December of this year. And last week, we also saw quite a bit of news on the No Surprises Act. On Friday, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services opened the government portal where providers and other parties can initiate an arbitration process or an independent dispute resolution process if they are unhappy with their reimbursement for out-of-network claims that are protected by the No Surprises Act. Those claims, as outlined by the No Surprises Act, include all out-of-network emergency claims, plus certain non-emergency out-of-network claims in in in-network facilities. The No Surprises Act lays out a process providers can use if they are unhappy with how a payer has reimbursed them for these claims, including a 30-day negotiation period with the payer followed by the opportunity to go through a dispute resolution with a third-party independent arbitrator. So now that portal is open, and if a provider has gone through the negotiation period with the payer anytime since January, they now have three weeks from today to initiate an, an, an independent dispute resolution through that portal. Uh, the CMS No Surprises website also has a number of other functionalities that it has up and running, including the ability for providers to submit complaints against health plans that the provider believes is not complying with the process for settling reimbursement, 
It also includes the ability for consumers to submit complaints about providers and any medical billing experience. And in related news, the administration plans to clamp down on egregious provider billing, according to reforms announced on Monday of last week. The effort aims to take on providers that offer predatory payment plans to eligible patients, noting that lawsuits against patients have increased. And as part of that initiative, the administration plans on requesting data from more than 2,000 providers on medical bill collection practices. Uh, this initiative builds on some of the other moves by the government with regard to medical debt. A few weeks ago, we heard that the credit reporting bureaus are removing medical debt as a factor in credit ratings. And as well, Chuck, getting back to our theme of the No Surprises Act, the administration has also issued warnings to collection agencies about being careful not to go after patients regarding claims that are prohibited by the No Surprises Act. Back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Matthew, very much. That was former CMS official Matthew Albright. Matthew is the Chief Legislative Affairs Officer for Zealous. Now's the time for the results of today's Monitor Money Listener Survey once again. Here is Tiffany Ferguson. Thanks, Chuck. All right, I asked our listeners, what is the impact your organization could have as a result of the Skilled Nursing Facility Prospective Payment System proposed rule? And our listeners replied with the majority of them as some impact related and next highest is greatest impact. So there is the ability to go on, click on the link, go ahead in my article, and then you can reply with any type of comments, suggestions, concerns, any of that back to CMS. It shows you in there how to reply for the open period. And with that, back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Tiffany, very much for your survey. Coming up next, why are observation volumes stressing so many U.S. hospitals? That story is next. This is Monitor Monday. Stand by. Happy Hip Week from AHIMA. AHIMA is proud to sponsor this Monitor Monday broadcast and looks forward to seeing the health information community at the AHIMA 22 Global Conference in Columbus, Ohio in October. The event will center around four content themes, workforce, privacy and security, consumerism, and data. The AHIMA 22 Global Conference is the can't-miss event for health information professionals ready to create a healthier, more equitable future for patients around the world. And for the third straight year, AHIMA will offer virtual sessions as part of the conference. Learn more about the AHIMA 22 Global Conference and AHIMA 22 Virtual at conference.ahima.org. As we mentioned at the top of the broadcast, observation volumes are stressing many U.S. hospitals, but there are strategies that can be implemented to reduce the volume of observation cases. So here now to report our lead story is the Vice President of Care Management for Trinity Health, Mary Beth Pace. And good morning, Mary Beth. What do we need to know? Good morning, Chuck, and thank you for asking me to come back. Last week, I began to discuss how to manage observation in your organization, but I ran out of time, so I'm back this week to provide some pointers. I want to stress that Dr. Hirsch did speak about abiding by the rules in his segment. I will also remind all of you that we absolutely need to abide by the rules. I will never guide you to look the other way. So whether you are a not-for-profit or a for-profit organization, let's focus on the care being provided to the insurance card member in this session of Monitor Monday. I know that observation billing level of care is the strategy that insurance companies are using to hold their costs down. 
the delta between inpatient and outpatient can be in excess of $7,000 in some areas, and obviously much more, much, much more than that when, they, when the stay includes any case that may have symptoms plaguing the ability to transition. If you are like most places, the billing status does not dictate the care provided. It just dictates the reimbursement that you can expect to obtain. And worse yet, it does not use the person's insurance benefits correctly. So how can we combat that? Starting with contracting. Get involved with your own payer contracting. Request that all of your contracts include utilization review standards. Expect that each insurance company should identify the screening tool that they will use. And more importantly, call out a physician advisor peer-to-peer process. Here are some of the pieces to be aware of. Each criteria set has observation guidelines. Insurances tend to only approve OBS because they can tell you the patient meet those. But honestly, patients at a minimum need to meet OBS in order to get to meeting inpatient, so don't get caught here. Insist that peer-to-peer include discussing the case with your physician advisor. Your attending physicians are not peers to medical directors at insurance companies, and really they should be able to care for the patients, not wait for a call from an insurance company. Make sure any reports the insurance company provides to your facility is OBS for OBS as a percent of inpatient cases, does not include maternity. The maternity laws are pretty clear about inpatient, and while we occasionally will get a technical denial for no notification, those are all approved. This artificially lowers your observation rate. Participate in all of the Joint Operating Committees, or JOCs, and provide examples of the issues you are having with each and every insurance company. Then let me close by discussing traditional Medicare, the two midnight rule, and the inpatient-only list. In 2021, CMS removed over 500 procedures from the IPO list. Since then, they admitted they did not follow their own process in evaluating those procedures, so most of them have been added back to the IPO list for 2022. And perhaps more importantly, outpatient procedures that could be moved to a freestanding surgery center were also moved back into the hospital outpatient procedure area. Keep an eye out for all of these. They affect your bottom line significantly. In April 2016, the ruling came out about the actual order for the procedure for an inpatient-only procedure could be after the surgery if identified as an inpatient-only. Put someone on the case of reviewing all Medicare surgery cases before and after surgery. They They can prove their return on investment, usually in two months of work. And please do not forget to communicate with your patients. Back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Mary Beth, very much. That was the Vice President of Care Management at Trinity Health, Mary Beth Pace. Now's the time for our Monitor Monday Q&A, and David, let's answer a couple of questions that are coming in. We've got time for that. You bet. So, Nicole, you mentioned the uh, limits on reopening. Can you talk maybe a little bit about the 48-month limit that Medicare has on reopening absent fraud or similar fault? Yes, after within four years from the date of the initial uh, date of service, contractors, if they go past those four years, there's got to be an accusation of fraud or established good cause. That's a very good point when I said that ZPICs did not have any specific look-back periods. They still have to abide by the 48 months. And it's interesting because the definition of fraud or fault there is weird. It's not exactly the one you or I would use in common English, but it is a pretty good limit and certainly I've seen many a UPIC lose their, uh, or ZPIC lose their ability to claim an overpayment because of that 48-month limit. 
So Matthew, on the PHE, should we expect that the PHE is going to end in July? The administration has told us they're going to give us warning. Are they giving us warning? What's the status of the PHE to the best of your ability to predict it? I would say we can take uh, what has happened over the last month or so with regard to how close we came on this one to take as a warning that July will be the end of the PHE. Certainly, there's push from the Republicans to wrap this up. And even within the administration, there's a lot of talk now of saying, We've got the tools now. We've got the tools now. We've got the tools now. And I think we can take this as a warning that we've come to the end of the rope. Now, anything can happen, right? God forbid that numbers go back up. But even the uh, HHS secretary a couple of weeks ago was saying, you know, we might not be able to give you the warning. We might have to just end it. So there's even some waffling and some disagreements that it be continued even through to July. So, yeah, I think we should be warned. I'm trying to remember, they promised us, was it a 60-day warning? Mary Beth is thinking it's 60 days. I'm trying to remember, and I should know this. I'm embarrassed that I do not. But I thought that HHS said that they'd give us they a had, couple, uh, even 90 days. They absolutely did. But I, I'd have to say that's a gentleman's or a gentlewoman's uh, agreement. There's nothing that says that they have to give a 60-day warning. And like I said, they did warn us before. They said we'd give you a 60-day warning. And then a few weeks after they said we'd give us a 60-day warning, Secretary was saying, maybe we won't be able to do that. Maybe we're going to be looking at the numbers right up until the last minute. So I wouldn't count on that 60-day warning. That'd be nice. But again, it's probably a gentleman's agreement. Go ahead, Rob. David, I was going to say, you always, you always stress the regulatory hierarchy from law down to regulation. I'm wondering where promise fits on that hierarchy. Exactly. Uh, I, uh, <laughs> I just well said, Ron, and promise fits in wishful thinking. And speaking of wishful thinking and gentlemen, right. I'll turn it back to you, Chuck. Thank you very much, gentlemen, all of you. Thank you, and gentle ladies as well. And that is going to be a wrap for this live edition of Monitor Monday. And we thank our good friends at AHIMA for sponsoring today's edition of Monitor Monday. And a special thanks to our outstanding panelists, Nicole Emanuel, Timothy Ferguson, David Glazer, Dr. Ronald Hirsch, and our special guest this morning, Mary Best Pace. She is the Vice President of Care Management. And before you go, remember you can listen to all the Monitor Monday broadcasts on Stitcher, Apple, Spotify, and Google Play, and when you do rate us, give us a review. Until next Monday, I'm Chuck Buck reporting for Monitor Monday and Rack Monitor. Have a great week, everybody. Monitor Monday is a presentation of Rack Monitor. Monitor.